You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, it's important you understand the content of this podcast may be difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. The information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. On 15 June 2022, the High Court of Australia handed down a decision which has the potential or had the potential to have serious superannuation estate planning consequences for potentially hundreds of thousands of self-managed super fund members. Now, my name is Craig Day, head of the First Tech team, and here to discuss this important decision and what it means for SMSF members and their professional advisors is our special guest, guest, Clinton Jackson, partner at Brisbane-based law firm Cooper Grace Ward. Hey, Clinton. Hey, hi, Craig. Thanks for having me. How are we? Yeah, no worries. Now, mate, I said I was going to do this to you, but Superannuation Lawyer of the Year by Best Lawyers, well done. I think it's a pretty small small group that you're getting judged in, mate, so oh, thank you very much. Oh, no, come on, come on. But I did go on and have a look, and I did notice there was a certain partner of your law firm that was also down on this, what is it, Best Lawyers? I didn't get quite, you know, Best Lawyer, Superannuation Lawyer of the Year. So you're the best in your firm, not only there, Australia as well. <laughs> oh, well, at least I'm the, the best in my firm. I guess that's, that's something more than Mark Moore ever was, wasn't it? So. Yeah, excellent, <laughs> excellent. And also I did notice on your website listed as a rising star in Australasian Lawyer Magazine. Now, I must admit I don't subscribe to that, what must be a very august publication, but I think that was that was a while ago, was it? Oh, I'm pretty sure it was. It's. I think I've been been using that one for a bit too long now. So. Uh, well, mate. Well, obviously they got it right because rising star leads to best. So there you go, mate. Well done. Thank now, you. Now moving on to the topic at hand. So as I said in the in the intro on 15 June, High Court handed down its decision in Hill v Zuda. PTY LTD as trustee of the Holly Superannuation Fund. Now, this case concerns binding death benefit nominations in self-managed super funds and whether they need to comply with the requirements outlined in the CIS Regulation 6.17a, which includes the requirement that they must be renewed every three years and if if you don't renew them, they lapse, Um, and also that they must be witnessed by at least two independent witnesses who are over the age of 18. Now, in this case, so what you know, get to the nub of it first, what did the High Court decide? Yeah, so the High Court in this case decided that um, that effectively that regulation 6.17a did not apply to self-managed funds, uh, which effectively was, I guess, upholding the, the existing sort of understood position um, in, the, in the industry, which, which was a positive result. It means there's been no real change um, in the law. Yeah, and I was going to actually ask you that. So, like when I saw this, I thought I thought this decision of this matter had already been resolved. Um, you know, we've got the self management fund ATO self management fund determination two thousand eight slash three. We've also got a number of other cases. Do you want to just run through why the ATO was actually, sorry not the ATO the High Court was actually looking at this? Yeah, well, I guess it's always nervous when when the High Court sort of says that there's an issue to be heard in a case like this um, because the High Court does not hear every case. Um, they only hear cases when they think there is a, an issue. So that, that's what made Hill and Zuda such a, an important case for our industry. 
um, and for self-managed funds. Um, but up until now, all the cases um, and even the ATO commentary, as you said, Craig, um, in SMSF determination 2008 number three have all been pretty clear, um, and that is that this regulation did not apply to self-managed funds. Um, now, I guess th- there's a number of lawyers who, who over time have sort of raised queries with that and and obviously mm-hmm. until the High Court decides a case like this, there's always a, a level of unknown. Um, but so far, the cases have been rather consistent. Um, yeah, because I remember when the, the ATO did come out with that determination back in, what was it, 2008? Um, and I, I looked at it at the time and I thought, well, that's just the ATO. They're, like, that's the... That's the regulator. That's not a court saying that. But we didn't have to wait too long, really, did we, before we saw cases come out and start to confirm. What was the first one? I think it was Munro and Munro. Was that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so there was a there was an earlier Queensland decision of Donovan and Donovan, but that that was on sort of slightly different terms in terms of the actual deed in that case, sort of important mm-hmm. in the requirements of the regulation. But Munro and Munro um, renarrow on another Queensland case. But the, the sort of the binding authority, which the High Court sort of considered, uh, was Cantor Booth, Booth and um, uh, Cantor Management and Booth, sorry, uh, which is a mm-hmm. South Australian full court case. Um, so, so all those cases sort of said consistently that the regulation did not apply, um, which really confirmed the, the position that was outlined by the ATO. Um, but it's always nervous as a professional, um, sort of relying something. Um, that the ATO has sort of put in a ruling because they are not a binding yeah. authority in this space and, and they do not decide cases between, um, I guess, lawyers and, and various beneficiaries. So um, the, the ATO is not always right, but they definitely were in this case and, and the High Court has now said that. Okay, so to, to get an understanding of how it ended up at the High Court, can you run through the circumstances? And the, yeah. the decisions of the relevant courts. So obviously we had the, the initial court and then the Court of Appeal. Mm, absolutely. It's actually a, a bit of an unusual case in terms of the way that it got to the High Court um, because when it was first heard, in, and it's a Western Australian case, so, so when it was first heard over there, um, effectively the, the single judge that heard it effectively dismissed the case. They summarily dismissed it, which means there's not really a matter to be heard between the parties because it was already a decided issue um, and, and they were following the authority. So courts, lower courts, so single judges or and courts of appeal have to follow decisions of earlier courts. So so they effectively mm-hmm. quoted Munro and Munro, Renaramon, um, Cantor Management and Booth um, and sort of mm-hmm. said this issue has already been decided, there's nothing for us to decide go away basically. Um, but in saying that, they sort of did express maybe those cases weren't right, um, which sort of left the question open. Um, so obviously the beneficiary, um, who was the, the daughter, um, who was trying to invalidate the nomination in this particular case, challenged it. So um, she's then appealed to the to the um, Court of Appeal um, in Western Australia. Um, and normally when a Court of Appeal hears a case that is summarily dismisses rules about what they can actually decide. But here, effectively, both the parties agreed for the, the actual issue as to whether the regulation um, actually applied to self-managed funds to be determined by the Court of Appeal. So they sort of went further than they normally would be allowed to, um, mm-hmm. which is good for us because obviously it helps us get the answer. Um, once again, though, they said that um, the regulation did not apply um, to self-managed funds but also expressed 
we're only deciding that because we we think we're bound by the earlier decisions, uh, but we're not 100% sure it's right. They sort of they didn't say that expressly, but reading between the lines, that they definitely expressed some reservations. Okay. Um, so obviously, the daughter who's challenging this binding innovation thinks that there's a potential to keep pushing it. Um, and the only yep. place to go from there is to the High Court. Um, and when you go to the High Court, before the High Court will hear it, they actually have a, what's called a special leave application uh, where the High Court firstly determines if there's anything worth hearing. And anything that's worth not worth hearing and sort of clear law um, gets dismissed, um, which we all expected this one to be dismissed. Um, yep, yep. But the, the special leave application was granted and ended up being heard by the High Court where they obviously went through the issue um, to, to work out uh, what the actual um, position was. Um, now, the one interesting thing about this case is it actually uh, is about a binding nomination that's been made in a rather unusual way. Um, so yeah, I was going to ask you about that because it wasn't your typical, you know, pro forma thing that someone's printed off, was it? It was actually something that was done to the deed? Yeah, absolutely. So, so. Pretty unusual, not something you see very often, but there's no reason why it can't work. Um, and we see people do that in deeds. Sometimes they try to do it in wills. Uh, rather than having a separate standalone binding nomination form, which complies with your deed, in this particular case, when they actually varied the deed in 2011, they put two clauses, clause five and clause six, into the variation document. And that variation document included those clauses which said, the members left their super as a binding nomination to the surviving spouse. Um, so, an unusual way, but doesn't mean it's ineffective. Um, so, and, and would obviously, that, would that be would that be like stronger than a normal binding nomination? Like a, a lot of, we'll probably talk later on. A, a lot of binding death benefit nominations get challenged by lawyers, etc. Under the basis that the form's not properly doesn't line up with the deed, if you put it in the deed, does that make it a bit harder to challenge? Um, no, I don't. I don't think so. I think I think mm. that really comes down to that core issue about how do you make a valid binding nomination, right. um, and that really is sort of dependent on what the documentation says, um, which I think we'll, I think we'll get to in a little bit more detail once we yeah. we get through this yeah. case. Um, so, so there, like, just going back to the circumstance. So, you've said it. The the daughter was challenging. I, I would imagine here, um, from my reading, I think there was the, there was a second spouse, was there not? That's and the right. second spouse was left in control of the trustee. There was this thing purporting to be a binding death benefit nomination. The trustee just wanted to follow that binding death benefit nomination, but the daughter saying, "No, you can't," because it was made more than three years ago. Um, yeah, that's spot on. So, so obviously, the binding nomination in favour of the surviving spouse, if that nomination is invalidated, and she, she argued on two grounds, uh, one being the nomination was made more than three years ago. Um, so, right, we, yeah. we had the nomination made in the deed, which is 2011, um, and then we had obviously date of death a number of years later, I think 2016. Um, so, we're, we're past a three-year time period. Um the other ground was that, that the deed was not witnessed by two witnesses, um, which obviously the regulation uh, requires mm -hmm. two, two, or has a two-witness requirement. Um, so she's challenged on that basis, and obviously if the challenge is successful, we're then back to trustee discretion. Um, yeah. Now, there are a number of cases on trustee discretion. That's a, a whole other can of worms um, <laughs> about how that can actually be exercised. But what she would have been hoping to do then is once it was back to trustee discretion, we have this conflict issue and whether the second spouse would be able to actually exercise that discretion to pay to herself um, 
versus paying either to the daughter directly or paying to the estate where the, the daughter would obviously be able to challenge the estate under the, the family provision rules over in, in Western Australia. Right. Sounds like a, two people that really quite like each other. <laughs> well, <laughs> Maybe they do. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> the old saying, I never trust a person until you've divided an inheritance with them. But um, clearly there was, you know, some people here really lawyered up and ready to fight all the way to the end. Absolutely, and, and like these things, if you if you go back ten years, estate litigators who, who did these family provision applications of challenging wills weren't really alive to these issues. Um, but super being such a big asset now, and and obviously with so many cases being heard over the last sort of ten years, um, challenging binding nominations, um, they're they're well schooled um, to understand how easy it is. Um, to sort of, I guess, invalidate one of these nominations. And, and that means effectively you're increasing the value of the estate um, that their clients are challenging for a bigger share of. All right. So to bring it back to where we got to, so she's arguing that it wasn't witnessed and it's out of date. So essentially she's saying the requirements to make a binding death benefit nomination under 6.17a applies to a self-managed super fund, yet we know from all the previous cases, the ATO and then Munro and Munro and all the other cases after that, that were saying, no, 6.178 doesn't apply. So therefore, you can make a non-lapsing binding death benefit nomination and also no requirement to have it witnessed. So the, the client in this situation or the deceased member has made this binding nomination thinking that 6.178 doesn't apply. They're trying to argue that it does apply. So what did the High Court actually say? It's yeah. analysis. So, so a really technical, uh, I guess, argument and, and anything that gets to the High Court obviously does get down to this really technical sort of detail. Um, and mm. I think, Craig, you and I had a, had a little wager on the outcome um, in, in, t- in terms of... <laughs> and I won, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of you, you said, like, the, the cases are all really clear. This is just going to get thrown out. Obviously, my concern was the High Court doesn't agree to hear things like this unless they believe yeah. some of this wording is complicated enough to justify clarification. Um, but effectively, the High Court did throw it out, um, as you mm. said, um, Craig. And, and effectively, what they did say is is that the regulation um, is made under the a provision of the Act, which specifically excludes applying to self-managed super funds. Um, now, there was some sort of potential discrepancy as to whether another section of the Act applied um, to make that regulation, um, but, but the High Court eventually decided that it didn't, um, and therefore, mm-hmm. clearly, um, the regulation does not apply. Um, and, and there's a couple of pretty um, crystal clear quotes from, from the High Court sort of saying, having regulation 6.17a apply to self-benefit funds is effectively redundant. Um, it, it's completely unnecessary um, because obviously you've got the, the trustees and the members being the same people. So. Yeah, you're requiring them to tell themselves how to do something. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so to sum it all up, or not quite yet though, but what does this actually mean? I assume it means... I can make a non-lapsing binding death benefit nomination to a self-pension fund. And if I've already made one, it's, it's okay. I don't need to run off to a lawyer to get it redone. Yeah, absolutely. So so what it means is is that your ability to make binding nominations is deed dependent. So your trust deed is the only document you need to look at um, to make a binding nomination. Um, binding nominations are a really valuable estate planning tool 
But with all the cases we've seen over the last period of time, uh, they are high risk. Um, so if it is something that you've made a number of years ago, although technically the High Court says there's no need to go change what you've done, it's always a good idea to go review those. Um, but in, in essence, the High Court said that if you've made one under your deed and your deed allows it to be binding on the trustee, that so long as you've jumped through all those hoops, you're, you're okay to go. Yeah. Um, a couple of things that I think you've pointed out, that if your deed allows it, it doesn't have to lapse. It can be a non-lapsing nomination. Um, mm-hmm. Also, you don't have to have two witnesses. You just have to follow whatever the requirements are in your deed. Um, mm-hmm. They're probably the two key things to take away from this. Okay. Now, also, I've, I've read a bit of commentary, so... You know, you, you look around what people are writing around this stuff. Um, and I've read commentary that says that this means members of self-managed super funds, super funds can make non-lapsing buying nominations, as we've discussed, unlike members of large regulated funds that have to follow the requirements of 6.17a, which when I read that, I jump up and down and say, that's not right. That is not right. So that's not right, is it, Clinton? <laughs> There is no court case to confirm the position on that one, Craig, so so it's still up for debate. And I I think realistically there are two different schools of thought out there. Um, Mm -hmm. One school of thought says that the only binding nomination you can make in a big fund is one that complies with 6.17a. Um, mm-hmm. I think that is a pretty limited view of the Act in terms of the, the reading of the Act. The other option, and I think I think is probably the correct option, um, is that you can make non-lapsing binding nominations in a big fund so long as the trustee allows. And, and there are a number of deeds out there, um, big funds, sorry, um, that do allow that to happen. Not all of them, um, but some of them. Um, yeah, yeah. So and I think... Yeah, yeah. Um, oh. yeah, I was going to agree. You do need to be, be careful there. You need to ask the question... Um, but essentially what Colonial First State has taken the view that Section 59 of the CIS Act allows um, a member of the fund to exercise the trustee discretion so long as the governing rules will allow and the trustee consents to them doing that. So that's the way large funds can offer, or we, our view is that that is the way that they can offer a non-lapsing binding of death benefit nominations because that is a different way of doing it other than require or going through the, the CIS regulation requirement of 6.178. So that's why you see actually quite a large, uh, significant number of large um, funds out there, such as a Colonial First Aid, um, offering non-lapsing binding death benefit nominations. And, and once again there, it's interesting, right, because technically there would also be no requirement for witnessing or anything like that, but that's where you see those large funds say, well, if we're going to do this and it's going to be non-lapsing, um, what do we want to require before we will consent? And so for us, we do actually import some of the, well, not, not import, but we take some of those concepts. So we will require our non-lapsing nominations to be witnessed in the same way that uh, as uh, one done via 6.17a is required to be witnessed. And that makes perfect sense. When you think about it, like a binding nomination, it's not a will, but it has the same effect as a will. Um, it, it's effectively a, a document that has a testamentary outcome um, for, for what can be somewhat the largest asset um, or, or one of the largest assets that members have. Um, so it's prudent to take uh, diligent steps to, to before allowing someone to make one um, and re- I guess having an outcome that, that will affect the way that their estate planning is is implemented. Um, yeah, right. So, but, but as, a, as a secret, I think the better view is that the section does allow um, big funds to do that 
Um, yeah. But there's definitely some people out there that will tell you black and blue no. uh, that the fiction doesn't. So. <laughs> okay, terrific. All right, so we'll bring it back to SMSF. So as we've kind of indicated that the High Court does allow, but it absolutely comes down to what your deed allows, doesn't it? So you've got to word the deed specifically to achieve this outcome. Absolutely. Um, so, so the High Court case now is clear. It is completely trustee dependent. Um, so you need to work with your deed. Um, and every deed out there is slightly different. So you need to work with the actual deed that you have um, and jump through all the little hoops um, that that deed requires um, for you to make a valid binding nomination. There are lots and lots of ways these things can go wrong. Um, and whenever we do binding nominations for, for anyone, um, we also then immediately after drafting it, sit there and put our hat on, okay, if we were on the other side, how would we pull mm. this apart? Um, because some of these cases that you see have turned on one word, like the word given. A binding nomination is given. Um, and what does that mean? Um, so, so you need to be really, really careful um, and make sure that you jump through all the hoops. Sometimes there are deeds out there that are a bit difficult to comply with and rather than sort of either use a template form and think you can get away with it or you try to jump through all these really complicated hoops, sometimes the better option is to sort of go amend the deed you're working with to, to be a more usable option. Um, so, so, yeah, one of the things I when I chat to advisors about this, I, one of the tips I say is go back to the lawyer that wrote the deed to get the binding nomination form because if you start to use some other form you get off the internet or who knows where you get it, then the chances that that deed won't line up with how, sorry, the chances the form won't line up with how the deed is written is going to be super high. And then all you need is a half-competent lawyer and he's going to drive a truck through that uh, through that arrangement and invalidate everything. Oh, is that That's my view. Yeah. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. It's a really good starting point. You, you need to have someone who is thinking about this. And I know there's a lot of state planning lawyers out there that they refuse to even write binding nominations. They'll send them to a specialist like us or another superation lawyer out there because there are so many people who are trying to drive trucks through these things um, because there's so much money at stake. Um, yeah. So, so absolutely, there's definitely value there in going back to either the deed provider or to a specialist to, to get these things done properly. Yeah, and the example you gave before, the word given, I think that was that the Worcester Morris case around um, whether that binding nomination was was valid because I think the the trustee was saying, well, no one gave me a binding nomination. Yeah, so that, so that one was Cantor Booth and um, so Cantor, Cantor Management right. and Booth. Yeah, so so effectively the brother was the the other director, um, and when the member died. Um, the the deed required the the nomination to be given to the trustee, and the brother turned around and said, "Well, I've never seen this, so how how's mm. it been given to me?" Um, he they fluked it in that case because the trustee was actually a company, um, and the company's registered office was the accountant's office, and that's where the binding nomination was signed and kept. So they yeah. they got it they got lucky on a technicality, um, but if there mm. were individual trustees, that case would have turned out very different. Um, right. So, yeah, very difficult. Um, but but there are a number of examples out there like that. Yeah. Now, I suppose also if the deed requires the binding nomination to be made in accordance with 6.17a, which I assume can happen, then a three-year lapsing nomination is, is your only option. So what sort of wording could bring that into play, do you think? Yeah, absolutely, and I think like there was, there's already been a case on this particular issue, um, Donovan and Donovan, once again a Queensland case, where the wording in that deed 
imported Regulation 6.17a into the requirements. Um, and there's definitely some examples out there. Um, and I've gone through and sort of looked through a, a couple of files that we have on our desk at the moment. And, and there's one out there that, that the definition of binding nomination in the deed um, says that the, the, the notice has to be made in accordance with the Regulation 6.17a. So because that's now worded in the deed... The only way we can comply with it is obviously following those formal requirements to witnesses, give information, and then potentially we're, we're limited to that three-year lapsing issue. Um, there's also another deed out there, a really popular one, that says that um, the nomination has to be a binding direction under the Act for the trustee to be bound by it. Um, that one's a little bit more problematic because the High Court has now said that a SMSF trustee is not bound by the provisions of the Act. So so you can't actually make a binding nomination under that particular deed. And it's all just because of the choice of wording. So that, that sort of goes to show you how particular some of these issues are um, and how careful you need to be when you make one um, to ensure that you actually achieve the outcome you're looking for. Yeah, a minefield, a minefield. All right, I think that sums it all up. We've managed to talk 25-odd minutes on, on Hill and Zuda. Um, so to sum it all up, I think the High Court of Australia have handed down a decision that basically says to industry that 6.17a does not apply to self-pensioners. And so potentially we can make a, a binding death benefit nomination that is non-lapsing and we don't have to have it witnessed. However, as Clinton's been clearly saying to us, it's always absolutely dependent on the wording of the deed. And if in doubt, go and seek professional assistance, which I'm pretty sure, Clinton, you'd be happy to help out with. Absolutely, Craig. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. There you go. That's that's your payment, a free plug for coming on my podcast for, for 25 minutes. Anyway, mate, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I've actually found that fascinating to actually dig into the ruling. There's lots of stuff you can read on the internet. It goes through two paragraphs and basically says there's not much to it. It's just keep doing what you're doing. But actually there is a fair amount in there that we need to be careful of and, fun, and you know, professional advisors need to be all across. So thanks for your time, mate. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please note these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors as a source of general information. All scenarios considered during this podcast were purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. You should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decisions and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.